Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So, yesterday I spoke to Rob Lyman about the Indian Army during the Second World War, and the thing that came up during that chat was the um, the fact that the Indian Army is full of volunteers. And obviously people join armies for different reasons, but the Indian Army is the biggest volunteer army of the Second World War. But meanwhile, there are other armies who are having to not rely on volunteering, but having to draw on their citizens. And a citizen is perhaps a new notion um, during, the early, during the mid-20th century. So, to talk about that, We've got three people who I'm sure will have plenty to say about it. And it's really fantastic that we're able to get historians of this calibre to come and talk to you at this event. I'm I'm a massive fan of all three of them and uh, their writing in recent years. So let's welcome to the stage Daniel Todman, Jonathan Fennell and John McManus. Hello. Hello. What a, what a pleasure to be back at We Have Ways Fest. Came last year, had a lot of fun. Even better to be back and see even more people here. I think we're going to have a really interesting conversation. Um, I thought what we might do is talk about three big things. And I'm very conscious of being someone who knows a lot about Britain and the war as a whole, but less uh, expert, perhaps, on the specific armies that we're going to be talking about. So I'm really pleased to have such expertise uh, on the stage with me today. I thought we'll talk about what are citizen armies, uh, then we'll talk a little bit about citizen armies in combat, and then about politics and the citizen army. Okay, so maybe we could start by talking a bit about the citizen armies of uh, Britain and its empire, and we'll, uh, we'll talk a bit about the American army as well. No? Yep, terrific. So, Jonathan, if you were going to talk about a citizen army, yeah. or citizen armies yeah. of Duke, yeah. <laughs> uh, how would you define that? Well, it's us, isn't it? It's the folk in this room. And if you're a citizen, you've got a stake in society in some way. Um, you own the society. And through your suffrage, you can shape the society in which you exist. So the, f- the first kind of dynamic, I think, that is fundamentally and fascinating about these citizen armies is that there's a process of negotiation. Individuals choose to serve or they're made serve, and therefore they get a chance to talk back to the state and try and shape their service. So citizen armies, for start, I think is, it's, it's about an interaction between the individuals who are part of a state and the state, state apparatus itself. Now, when we talk about Duke, there are some parts of the citizen armies that are citizen subjects, I think, is, is, is probably a more accurate way of, of terming it. And there's a different dynamic in play there, and I think maybe we'll get into that as, over the course of the discussion. How, how, does, it, how does it shape up in the yeah, U.S.? You know, for the U.S., uh, really the fundamental question, going back to the colonial period, you know, is when the, when the average person looks at a soldier, he or she asks him, himself or herself, does that person uh, guarantee my liberty or threaten it? And so you have in the, in the kind of U.S. tendency a suspicion of soldiers, regular soldiers, professionals and all that. That dates back to the, to the Redcoats, you know, being quartered and all this. I'm sorry, you know, in the revolutionary <laughs> period, sorry. Uh, but it, there is that sort of residue of, of uh, distrust of the idea that you have somebody who dedicates their life to the, to the profession of soldiering. Um, this really begins a change in the Civil War. Uh, I think that's really the first time in American history that you see true citizen armies, and they're mostly volunteers. Now, there's a draft on both sides, but it's very 
very marginal and you get you don't get much quality manpower that way and it's maybe 10 percent you know so uh you've had that by the 20th century you've had that experience and there is this idea similar to what you mentioned uh that you're empowered in terms of the ballot box and, and all that and that the citizen does matter so by the time we get to the 20th century there is that kind of tradition of citizens mobilizing in in a time of, of great crisis and of course world war one uh, then you see the, only the second time in American history a, a draft um, passed in May 1917, the Conscription Act. Uh, what's unique about World War II, it's the first time in American history that you have a peacetime draft, barely passing Congress in 1940 and then barely renewed again in 1941. So the, what, I, what I always think about is that that poor guy who's drafted in December 1940 and you're supposed to serve like a year of active duty service and then you're in the reserves. And uh, you're about to get to the end of your service in December 1941, and then this little thing called Pearl Harbor happens, you know, and then uh, the dynamic changes to, okay, you're going to be in the, in the Army for the rest of the war, plus however long we need you. So, so John, how the, how the individual feels about the state really matters, right? So we can look across Duke, um, and we can see differences in how peoples mobilize for war. So French Canadians not so keen to fight in what they perceive as Britain's war. Afrikaners in South Africa, not so keen to fight in Britain's war. English speakers, on the other hand, are really quite up for it. Um, different parts of the Empire Commonwealth find different ways to mobilise. So conscription is brought into play in the United Kingdom, apart from Northern Ireland, because of political reasons. Um, it's brought in, broadly speaking, in New Zealand. But in places like Australia, where you have a large Irish Catholic minority, in places like Canada, they can't bring in conscription across the board because there's an imperfect relationship between the citizen and the state. So they bring in a kind of hybrid situation where volunteers can go overseas, but conscripts have to serve at home. So I'm interested in the situation in the American army in, say, 1940, because I've seen, say, sickness rates for the American army during this period of, of mobilization, and they just explode. They just go through the roof. So these, these Americans who are now being asked to serve, they're being conscripted, which is not, you know, liberty and all, they're not too happy. So I'm interested in how, how do oh, the Americans turn? Oh, really yeah. unhappy. Yeah. And, uh, and we are before the stage of, uh, you know, once the war actually happens of, okay, you're drafted and you're, you're obligated to serve and your peer pressure is, why aren't you in uniform? No, in 1940 and 41, um, the, the, the sort of culture is, how can I get out of this? Um, and sickness may be part of that. And of course, the other thing too is the, the, the armed forces have very high standards, especially before the war begins, uh, physical and emotional and mental. They reject something in the order of about one out of every three for service. Um, they're also trying to get ahead of the combat fatigue problem they'd seen in World War I and thinking, you know, this is a, a kind of defect we can find in a person. And so maybe we get it at the induction level. And so there, you know, there were a lot of ways to get out of it, uh, physically, mentally, emotionally, or whatever that once the war goes on, obviously that dynamic begins in change when they're getting everybody they can for the yeah. most part. And that plays out across Duke as well, because so we can look at um, French-Canadian battle exhaustion rates and desertion rates in comparison to English-speaking Canadian battle exhaustion and desertion rates, and they're frankly way higher. Now, there could be other reasons for that, but there's certainly a dynamic there between the relationship between the citizen and the state. We can look at where Afrikaners find themselves in the South African, the Union Defense Force in the Second World War, and they typically find themselves further from the combat zone. There's a lot of Afrikaners in base units, and there's a far fewer percentage of Afrikaners in frontline units. So who you are, where you're from, how you feel about the state, in some ways, does influence where everybody ends up in these, in these citizen armies. So let me pick up two things. One is uh, about timing. So it seems to me things about volunteering and conscription and how that changes in the immediate run-up to war and then once the war's actually happening. Okay? So, uh, I mean, I think if you were going to look at the UK example, excluding Northern Ireland, you'd say the, the big thing that's really striking is the introduction of conscription in peacetime before the outbreak of war and how relatively politically uncontroversial that is. So as somebody who's a historian of the... I was a historian of the First World War before I was a historian of the Second. You know, it's, uh, the idea of conscription is incredibly divisive in the UK uh, in the middle of the First World War. But by the Second World War, not at all. So actually, I, th I mean, the Labour Party makes a bit of a fuss about the introduction of conscription, but it's about trying to get good conditions for soldiers. It's not about stopping conscription happening. So I'm, I'm interested, can you talk a bit more, John, about the politics of, of introducing conscription. Uh, and then the other thing I want to ask both of you is about citizen armies and timing and the end of the war. 
So we talked a bit about the beginning. What, what about the end? Are people looking forward to the end? Does, does this sense of uh, citizens as servants of the state, does that shift as the war goes on? So let's start with conscription, conscription pre-war. Yeah, um, <laughs> conscript, conscription pre-war is incredibly controversial. Um, it is a lightning rod. And really, the argument tends to, sh to, to uh, break out on the isolationist versus internationalist side. If you were more on the non-intervention, whatever you want to call it, or isolation side, you would be adamantly opposed to the draft, typically. Um, if you were an internationalist, um, you probably could live with it, and you would say, well, we need to prepare for war. You know, you, of course, they have the short-of-war policy, and the wake-up call for this is the fall of France in 1940, mm -hmm. and that's what kind of gets the, the, the draft through in 1940. And I always thought it was remarkable, because this is a presidential election year, and this is not the time to be you know, considering that kind of legislation under normal circumstances, but you know, you're talking summer and fall of 1940. Um, but even then, it barely passes. So I would say it's, it's very unpopular in that sense, but, uh, but enough momentum for it for it to happen. And um, post-Pearl Harbor just becomes completely uncontroversial? Totally different. Then. Right. It, it, Pearl Harbor just changes everything. It, it, there is a complete acceptance, yeah, that, that, that you need to mobilize for the draft. And, but one of the things that's so curious about World War II is that in spite of the fact that it's a very popular war, arguably the most popular American war except maybe the Spanish-American War, which comes out of the pressure of public opinion, is that two-thirds of those who served in the U.S. Armed Forces were actually draftees and only one-third volunteers, whereas Vietnam, which has this idea of a you know, very unpopular war and coercive and all this, uh, actually two-thirds of those who served in Vietnam were volunteers and one-third draftees. So it's, it's this odd, but, but the, the, so the dynamic at work in World War II is that uh, they wanted to have control over where they were going to mobilize and send you. And so you might even want to volunteer, but you would technically be a draftee because they're saying, well, no, we need you for the Navy right now, or we need you for X, Y, and Z. So really, I mean, for me, again, that talks about the, the legacy of the First World War and that experience that all big states had of uh, needing to control the flow of manpower and put it into the right places. So there's a problem, you know, you might think that an all-volunteer army is good, but actually, if it's people coming in in an uncontrolled manner, it doesn't actually help the mobilisation for war. So, God, do you want to pick yeah, up that Yeah, like a volunteer we'll army on. sounds good, right? But it can be deeply divisive. So South Africa ultimately has a volunteer army. Parts of the, the Canadian and Australian forces are volunteer armies. But it creates deeply unfair, if you will, or unequal armies. Volunteer armies tend to be made up of the poorest people in society because they've nothing else to, they've nowhere else to go and they end up finding their way into the military. So... To give you an example, um, there were 105,000 New Zealanders who served during the Second World War. I've got a spreadsheet with every one of them, uh, name, rank, um, service number, um, occupation, so you can work out how social this class... Is, this is the audience that will be impressed by that. <laughs> yeah. <right? laughs> yeah, yeah. That was hard work, okay? Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Join his substack. <laughs> but what we see is, right, so the conscript army, uh, the volunteer army at the start of the war is mostly, mostly working class. And as conscription is brought in over the course of the war, it becomes a much more egalitarian force. And there's a greater degree of individuals on the upper, upper echelons of society. And at the end of the war for New Zealanders, they occupy, um, they occupy Japan. And again, it's a volunteer force. And it goes back to an overwhelmingly working class um, armed forces. So... There are dynamics that can play out, and it can be deeply divisive, of course, right? There's two major mutinies in, in the Duke forces during the Second World War. One is the New Zealand mutiny in 1943, where broadly conscripts um, who'd been told that conscription was going to make this a war of, that was equal, a war where sacrifice would be shared fairly among society. And there's 6,000 conscripts who are sent home to New Zealand for a little break, for furlough, and what they see at home is 30,000 fully fit men in reserved occupations on the home front. And they say, you must be bloody joking me. Um, I've just been serving for three, four years. I'm not going to go back when these fit guys, and they refuse to go back. And so eventually only 13% of these New Zealanders return to the front for a, a really crucial time in the war effort with regards to Monte Cassino. Um, similar thing happens with the Canadians. Eventually the Canadians have to send conscripts to the front because they're running out of individuals um, on the Western Front um, in the Second World War. And they, they plan to send about 16,000 conscripts from the West of Canada to, to the battlefront. Um, I think only about 1,000 or 1,500 eventually make it to the battlefront. I think about 6,000 just disappear off the trains as they're traveling across Canada. They don't want to go because they're citizens. And the relationship that they had negotiated with the state said, we will serve, but only on certain conditions. And the power of the individual here is immense. And we're so used to telling the story 
of the Second World War through the lens of the great men and sometimes the great women, but actually ordinary people had real agency. You know, they could leg it if they wanted to. Leg um, it in a democratic army. Okay, yes, in a democratic army. Leg it in the German army in 1944, you might have a few more but, problems. But it's interesting, right? So I've got the censorship summaries for the German army in the Second World War as well, right? So soldiers write home, okay? Um, thank, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so soldiers write home, their letters are censored for obvious security reasons, right? We don't want to give away secrets, but they're also turned into weekly and bi-weekly um, morale summaries. And, it's fa and for the Italians as well, by the way. And it is fascinating. They have the same concerns as the citizen armies. Even though they are you know, autocratic regimes, they are frightened out of their life that ordinary citizens won't do what they're being asked to do. And they're bending over backwards to try and find ways to ensure that ordinary citizens will serve. So even in non-democratic states, the power of the citizen kind of plays. You know, maybe we can talk more about that in a second. Yeah, yeah, I love this because yeah. for, me, so, uh, for me, this is one of the big philosophical questions about studying war in the 20th century, which is that uh, 1960s US anti-war slogan of what if they had a war and nobody came? So why is it that so many people choose to keep participating? So I'd flip Jonathan's question around in a way. Right? Why is it that so many continue to take part why is it that everybody just doesn't go back home and stop fighting once it becomes apparent that these are awful, appalling conflicts that are going to kill lots of people? So what's key, what keeps people motivated? I mean, part of it depends on the culture, uh, the culture of understanding. In World War II, of course, the culture is that you're going to have a lot of peer pressure that you need to go and answer the call. Um, and if you are an able-bodied young man walking around in the streets of New York City circa 1943, when so many of your peers are off doing something you know, to, to help fight this war, um, you're kind of a pariah. Now, some people don't care about that, but I think most of us like to fit in with our peer group or, or have societal approval or the approval of elders or, significantly in terms of, of men, the approval of the opposite sex. Um, and that's part of it, too. The, 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 the slogan in Vietnam War was, girls say yes to guys who say no, you know, for the anti-war crowd. Um, so this was a different kind of peer pressure. You know, in that era versus World War II, in which most of the women you would have encountered would have been like, well, why aren't you in uniform? But something that both, I mean, so something Jonathan's picked up is about um, different groups in society giving or not giving participation. Is there, is there a regional difference in the US? So are there areas where it always, every time somebody says that to me about um, peer pressure, I always think about my grandmother's family in Newcastle, where all the men were either down the pit or they were in the shipyards. Mm -hmm. right? And uh, so you, d you don't have lots of able-bodied men walking around, uh, uh, you know, being peer pressured to go into the forces, because actually all of their peer group are doing an industrial job that it comes with reasonably high status and lots of good pay, at least compared with being in the army. So are there places in the US where basically oh, yeah. everybody's, everybody's got an industrial job, you don't need oh, to? Oh yeah, well, shipyards, the, yeah. the, the ship towns like Mobile, Alabama, uh, all along the, uh, the Southern California coast near Long Beach, I mean, the Kaiser shipyards, I mean, uh, engineers, uh, you know, certainly you have a lot of that. You have um, a lot of people who had converged on Washington, D.C., um, you know, to, to work in war-related administrative jobs, 32-year-old uh, lawyers or something, you know, who now who are working in this agency or that agency or whatever else. And, and yeah, that, that would be considered fine, though they would have pressure from many of their own peers. Um, if I'm a 30-year-old lieutenant junior grade um, who served under destroyer for the entire war, I don't necessarily have a high opinion of a guy who spent the war in D.C. Uh, as a lawyer in, in some sort of bureaucratic job or whatever. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I think in, in the bigger picture sense, yes, there's an approval and an understanding that, that some youngish men are going to have those kinds of war necessary jobs. But um, in, in the sense of their peers who actually served, I think it's a completely different attitude. Okay, so maybe come back to talk about good wars and bad wars yeah. and what those different okay. things mean. So, so I think for me, the absolute driving dynamic that for me explains much of the Second World War is the relationship between big ideas and little stories. And the states that are able to make the little stories make sense or c connect with the big ideas do better. Um, so the corollary of you know, French-speaking Canadians not being too keen to, to serve is that English-speaking Canadians war because they felt a strong connection with the state. Um, you know, at times during the Second World War, the German state is extremely effective in offering German soldiers something meaty to fight for. Um, offering you know, to ensure that their loved ones back home are receiving every bit of welfare and support that they possibly can. 
Whereas at times the dynamic is quite difficult. If you're, if you're a British soldier during the war, it can get tough. And especially for the United States as well, where you have f- some families do double work. You know, so the, the women who end up entering the workforce in the United States during the Second World War, I think, tend to also be, uh, have husbands or boyfriends in the, in, in the armed forces. So it's how do, you, how do you make sense of the big ideas, Nazism, fascism, democracy, to us? And if, if they make that connection, then I, I see people willing to fight, willing to fight and to give everything they have, to give their one and only life. Still a big question about the relationship between the citizen and the state. How do you make the, what the state's trying to do meaningful to the individual citizen? Okay, so that, that segues neatly, though, with no planning, uh, into thinking about citizen armies in combat. So you were talking about sort of motivation. Is this motivation of big ideas something that works in combat, or is what motivates soldiers in combat uh, their mates next to them, or their hatred of the enemy, or just some, the dynamic of the battlefield? So Tarek Bakavi would say it's the battlefield creates its own dynamic, kill or be killed, and therefore it forces people to fight. Do, so do the big ideas matter uh, when you get down to the little foxholes? Do you want to go first? (laughs) I guess so. Um, (laughs) I mean, I know what I think and what I've seen in terms of the the survey data and, you know, having interviewed or known so many World War II combat veterans, because I'm a combat-oriented historian and uh, having really studied that, um, I think that the big ideas of the war, of World War II especially, of destroying Nazism and especially paying Japan back because there's so much anger over Pearl Harbor and whatnot, I think that gets you into uniform, and maybe it gets you through training to some extent, alongside the guys you meet and, and how you're changing you know, as you, as you go places you never would have seen, do things you never would have imagined doing. But once we're actually in combat, I don't think those are sustainment kind of thing. I mean, there's a, there's a sort of pride in, in the, and a, a kind of fundamental kind of foundation for the average American combat soldier that, yes, the war needs to be fought, and, and, they, and it's, the, it's, a right, it's a good war in the sense that uh, we need to win it. But it's like a nasty job that just has to be done. And what most had testified to is when the going really got rough, it was about the folks around them. Uh, American soldiers were very, uh, in World War II, were very uh, adverse to sort of idealistic statements and all this. And, and it's markedly different than the Civil War, in which Civil War soldiers are, are really stating their, their beliefs in the cause, North and South and all this. In World War II, that would have been thought of as just so much BS, um, so much kind of propaganda sheet kind of stuff. So you may have believed that, but you didn't necessarily mention it. I'd be just fascinated in why this is the case, right? And I'd love if people have some ideas or, arg- or arguments or questions about this a little bit later. So for the British and Commonwealth armies, it is radically different. Um, so you read the censorship summaries, um, you know, based on millions of letters sent, and the British soldier, the Canadian soldier, is talking about politics. The British soldier, the Canadian soldier, the Australian soldier, the New Zealand soldier wants to know what's in it for him after the war. He's politically aware now, I've had a look at a few American censorship summaries. So 1943, the Americans arrive in Tunisia, right? And just they, they copy the British censorship. I think they copy the British censorship pro, uh, process because they have all the same headings. Um, and they have a heading, politics, which is usually full for the Brits. Uh, and for the Americans, it goes politics. No comment. Um, post-war plans, full for the Brits. No comment. So, but but the start, the, almost the first thing that's in the American censorship summaries in 1943 is the American soldier is consumed with love. We talk about hate, right? Love. The American soldier is consumed with love. Love for his country, love for his family, love for his unit. Yes. So the the the, the band of brothers stuff. So you know, there is something going on there. But it's, see, it, it's different, right? And I and I why uh, why why why? I mean, that all sounds like politics to me. <laughs> Love of your country, yeah. that's politics. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, yeah, and maybe being maybe that's back to Jonathan's point about the big idea in the little story is that there's a there's an alignment between that patriotic purpose. The, the war hasn't lost its purpose, uh, even if uh, that's not what's providing the immediate motivation uh, in action. Does that sound about right? Yeah, I think so. Well, I think there's a foundational belief in the war. There's just an embarrassment over stating it. (laughs) Over saying, I mean, you may have that love in your heart, but can you really say, I love you? Um, You know, it it is like that. I mean, I I do think that the average soldier, sailor, airman, marine believes this war has to be fought and won. Most of them do. Um, But they, they, and, and the whole political side, of course, there's arguments between people who hate Roosevelt and you know who who love Roosevelt or whatever. But most uh, felt that the politics were sort of beneath them, 
in a way, that that's not really why they were there, and that uh, it wasn't something really to talk about that much or relevant to their lives, maybe, best. because the Americans are very, very sort of immediate and myopic. What's going to help me survive today? What's, uh, you know, how am I going to eat well and, and drink well and, you know, be warm and all this kind of stuff? And how's that, so how's, how's you know, FDR and his New Deal going to help me with that right now? You know, so. Maybe it's just the way Hold the on, because I'm going to just okay, go. Okay, yeah. I'm going to continue the fight that Jonathan and I have been having for the last five years. <laughs> uh, all right, let's see it. And that's about. Who's putting together these British censorship reports? Okay, right? yeah. So you've got this distinct pre-war moment in the UK where there's a sense of, uh, the old says the, the old order hasn't worked out. There needs to be some kind of reform. And maybe there's a bigger point here about this becoming the American century, a sense of you know, British power fading. Right? So this idea that you need some sort of reform. And it seems to me sometimes that the people who are collecting the morale reports and analysing them for the British Army are social democrats who want to see soldiers as citizens who want change. And so they, of course, what they read when they're picking things out from these censorship reports is, oh yes, politics, 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 politics. And maybe what they're not picking out is, I don't give a damn about politics, don't trust the people at home. I think armies are pretty, in their expression, you know, and I think there's something back to culture there, armies can be pretty cynical actually. So what about all those soldiers who say, I don't, I don't give a damn about home? Are they just not being included? There's, there's, a wonderful, uh, there's a wonderful quote, isn't there, that the only battle the Army Education Corps ever won was the 1945 general election. Um, you know, the, the soldiers were politicised by a bunch of lefty liberal academics who were led into the Education Corps and basically started talking about you know, citizenship and democracy. If you ever get a chance to read kind of British Way and Purpose or um, any of the documents that uh, the Army Bureau of Current Affairs produced... So t just tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so, okay, in 1942, there's concerns about the relationship, there's concerns about British morale. And one of the solutions that are put in place, in fact, across all the armies, the Germans do it later in 1944, they start to increase the amount of education that soldiers are getting so that they understand the cause for which they're fighting. So they get exposed to weekly, sometimes bi-weekly, educational sessions, right? So the officer comes in, he's given a booklet, and he's supposed to read from it and kind of tell them, okay, well, this is what democracy is. This is how the British Consti Constitution functions. Um, this is your place in our community. So it becomes a massive civics lesson for the, for the soldiers of the United Kingdom. I think you're right, you know, I, there's always a, right, somewhere in between, right? So I think the ordinary British soldier real, reasonably wants his family uh, to have a decent crack at life. I mean, it's, it's not like they're mad socialists. They want their families to have a decent crack at life. But what the Army Education Corps does, it, it educates the soldier and says, well, okay, if that's what you want, this is the process you've got to go through to get there. You've got to vote. You've got to understand how democracy works in this country. And of course, so, not, many, yeah. not many of them do vote in 1945. Enough of them vote. And <laughs> their families vote. And that's the key thing, right? So soldiers, soldiers are riding home. The German, on the, for the German war, 60 billion letters are sent between the home front and the battle front during the Second World War. Get that number in your bloody head. <laughs> 60 billion letters. That's, that's social media in the 1940s, right? Um, the, the stats for the United States Army, I think, and Air Force are about 10 million a day. Broadly speaking, that's the size of the armed forces, so every soldier, airman, is writing a letter every day. So we talk about the Band of Brothers, and there's no doubt about it, the Band of Brothers is, is central, right? You fight for your mate, it becomes really meaningful and deep because you're stuck in it together for a long period of time. But you're always connected back home. And that's the best part of the day, because war is boring. And it's tedious. And so the best part of the day is the end of the day, when you're finished digging your hole or whatever rubbish you've been asked to do today, and you write home to your, your girl or your dad or your mum, and everything makes sense. So, mm, and I, is that yeah. and, and is that the bit of education that's happening? Is I think we're I think doing something. So, in in your book, you talk about military service as a kind of education in citizenship, yeah. because it's about doing something with other people, and doesn't matter. Actually, it's I mean, in combat or out of combat, it's about having a collective purpose yeah. and working together. And you, you sort of construct that as this massive moment of political education, which maybe we shouldn't position on left or right, yeah. but about collectivism versus individualism. Yeah. Right? Uh, so know, it's about working together. I think if you're stuck in a, in a slit trench, and you re I, you know, I realise Dan now is the only way I'm going to get out of this alive. You're Paul, in trouble. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to get out of this alive. <laughs> you know. It's over. <laughs> John, you might be useful. <laughs> but, you know, and, and I realise that back home, you know, my wife or my friends or someone is working in a factory. I cannot disassociate myself from the web of human connections that is society. And so, you know, the narrative of, you know, personal, 
the narrative that, I, that you know, my success is, is because of me becomes really difficult to maintain because it's so clearly you're part of a team. And I think it is a moment of education. Certainly, I think, for British and Commonwealth troops, because I can see it in the centership summaries, even though I, I, I hear your, your questions about the process of doing the censorship summaries, it, it wakes people up to the system, to the team. And I think it does draw them, at least in that moment, right, that historical moment, I think it just pushes them a little bit to the left, and that plays out, as we might talk about in due course, in 45 and the election and, um, you know, the Churchill's defeat. Well, let's talk then about citizen armies and politics. Um, but I want, can we go bottom up before we go top down? So rather than talk about elections, um, is there a sense in which military service creates citizens? So do, are these... Uh, so let's say service personnel, <laughs> because uh, I'd want to include not just soldiers and maybe not just men. Uh, are, is, does, service person, do, does service lead to people having a different sense of citizenship? So are they citizens in a different way because, because they've put in a uniform? Because they've done service, are they different people than when they come I don't back? I don't think there's any question. Yeah, um, and I, I think I think the tendency for uh, particularly for many American soldiers who lived quite often or came from very insular backgrounds, very regional backgrounds, in which you would have thought of yourself as a Nebraskan, yeah. as a as a Missourian, as a, as an Alabamian or something, and you may have never left your home county, uh, especially in the Depression, the limited economic opportunities or whatever. Um, let's just imagine now you're on a on a B-17 crew. And you know the many different training posts you would have had, and how now maybe you'd be at a base in East Anglia, meeting all sorts of people you never would have met, going through experiences you never could have imagined. And yes, yeah, so now you think of yourself as a, in a more cosmopolitan way, and you think of yourself more and as an empowered citizen who has earned a major political voice. Now, I think you certainly had that before, but you tended to think of that maybe on a on a county or state level. Uh, and I think maybe the tendency after the war is more like on a national level, on what we're doing as a, as a USA and what that, what that means internationally and all that. I think that uh, certainly there's, there was an expectation already that the individual mattered politically um, and that they, the government has to respect that. But I think especially at the end of the war, especially for those who, who actually really fought it, um, there's no doubt that the, this, this, uh, this concept has expanded really quite dramatically. And is there a sort of generational effect? I mean, does the, could you track that through the rest of their lives? Oh, I don't think there's any question about that either, because uh, what we call the greatest generation, quote-unquote, is heavily involved in all the, the sort of major events that go on in the rest of the 20th century, uh, whether we're talking about the civil rights movement and the opposition to it. So let's not gloss over that. Uh, because a significant number of the greatest generation are the segregationists, too. Um, but also those who have served and now seen a completely different, more multicultural, multiracial world. Um, they've seen this horrible circumstance of, of serving, say, somewhere in a, in a southern post and seeing German POWs eating at a whites-only restaurant while African-American soldiers are turned away. Um, and so you do see this kind of involvement in larger civic issues, whether it's race, whether it's uh, certainly uh, the, the sort of technological explosion that's caused you know, by the Cold War, the space program, uh, the military. I mean, <laughs> the, the armed forces become a, a major focus of careers, more so after World War II than before, of course, because it's expanded. Um, and, and the government itself, uh, you know, universities, of course, education. I mean, all of that. Because you just kind of have a different mindset, and I think veterans are a huge part of that. Lovely. And Jonathan, same sort of stuff for the British Commonwealth? I mean, was it Tilly who said the state made war and the war made the state? Um, and I think there's no doubt about it. It plays out really, really powerfully in China, right? China falls to pieces in 1911 after the revolution, and it's split up between warlords and nationalists and communists fighting against each other. You know, Chinese in one part of the country never traveled to you know, other parts of the country, but the war means that people have to move to fight, and they learn about other parts of China. They learn about Chinese identity in the Chinese state. And, and you know, if you think about the creation of the communist, I mean, you know, a unified China in 1949 under communist rule, it is one of the defining stories of the 20th century and probably still is one of the defining stories of the 21st century. So that process of the creation of Chinese nationalism through the war, I think is absolutely central. I think women matter in this massively as well. So, you know, so men are sent into the armed forces in large numbers and they, they go through this experience that creates an understanding of the state and their role within it. But women are mobilized massively for the factories. And women find themselves getting pay that is not the same as men doing the same jobs. And they quite rightly say, you must be joking me. I'm better than most of these men. Um, I want to be paid the same. And in fact, if you look at, say, the German war economy, um, German industrialists were massively keen on getting Russian women in to do work in the economy because they were 
just about as good as a German man and better than almost every other man they could get their hands on. And so women also go through this process of, okay, well, the state is making me serve in a factory. If you're going to make me do something, I want something in return. There has to be quid pro quo. So I think that the, the process is... But you're, yeah. you're both talking, I mean, it's, you've gone very global, which is okay. brilliant. Yeah, fine. Right? Um, but, you know, China, the US, you're talking about states coming together and rising states. And, you know, if I was thinking about the UK, does military service make people believe in the empire more? I mean, the opposite, it seems to me, that uh, actually what happens is people, British men do service overseas and learn that they don't want to fight to keep the empire. They want to come home. So is there something about the way it shapes what? Yeah, because, you know, let's say the empire has, what, 450 million people? And Britain is running out of people by the end, 1944, maybe earlier, certainly by 1945. And you ask yourself the question, how is that possible? given that the Russians are able to be so profligate with human, their human, you know, their person power, why do we, you know, run out of people? Um, and it's because, I think, because the empire is shattering under the pressure of war. Um, in, in no, oh no, we might have a different perspective on that again, right? But, you know, it's hard to get Africans to fight. It's hard, you know, 1.5 million Indians, that sounds incredible. Of 350 million, that's a drop in the ocean. So again, you know, to what extent was the British empire able to align big words with little stories? I think they manage it in some cases, and they fail abjectly in others. And that's part of our problem. That's part of the problem. That's why the war, I think, is a difficult story for the empire. While in 1945, it seems like a, fa a fantastic effort. By the 1960s, you look back and you look at what's left of the empire, and you go, the war was a... You, you, you're giving there a lot of agency to individual states to make choices about whether, you know, is there any way in which a state which is facing... We might have a different question about whether we can call the British Empire a state. Right. Uh, is, there any, is there a way for an old empire to align big stories and little stories, or, or not? I mean, is it... Is it impossible? Is it impossible? I mean, in the case of India, what do you think? I mean, they could have promised independence early doors. Um, you might well have had the kind of energy that would have got the job done much quicker in the East, and that could have transformed everything. I mean, I think for me, the problem for Britain is by 1944, it's running out of money. You, you talk about this better than anybody, right? Yeah, I so, would say running yeah. out of money rather than running out of people, yeah. actually, is, the, is the, the cash for the... So that gets us on to the last point. We did, yeah, well, and, and the third thing is time, right? That actually, uh, if you're going to try and launch some kind of rearguard action, you need the time to do it. And actually, you lose, because relatively British power is decreasing, they've lost control of the timing of the end of the war, yeah. and therefore you can't line up the manpower, the money, the plans for what comes next. It seems to me, I mean, America's in a much better position of lining up what is the post-war going to look like in a way that can tell a positive story to citizens. So if the war finishes in 1943, or maybe in the, in the months just after the D-Day, it's still a British victory, and you know, it's, there's, more shape, there's more potential for Britain to shape the post-war world like it did in 1918. But it finishes in 1945, and we can tell who, who wins the war, who benefits from the war. Um, it's the United States and, you know, also the, the, the Soviet Union. Ah, no. Post-1940, post so much British money has gone to the United States. Uh, that when, when is it then? When, when can Britain still... Uh, no, I mean, look, I think you're right. an, an earlier end to the war is a, is a key point of British strategy, and it's where British strategy fails, and where Bomber Command... I think, uh, fails in terms of what it's meant to provide for British strategy, is it doesn't win the war over the winter of 43-44. Right? So you can't have a quick victory in Europe, get the war done in 44, it's going to drag on into 45. But also just that point about losing time, it's not just the end of the war in Europe. Right? The, the end of the war in Europe is kind of foreseeable. It's how quickly the war against Japan finishes. Which could go on for years, yeah. depending. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's if, just if we're talking about citizenship, it's very striking, I think, that in 44, the British start doing things like uh, arranging for service personnel to be paid more, yeah. really for the first time, thinking about the conditions of fighting personnel in the Far East to a new degree. Right? And that's, that's back to your point about trying to keep people going. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? 
Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Uh, let's should we do some questions. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Cheers. Thanks. Um, I went to the launch of your book, Jonathan, in um, uh, Birmingham University in 2019. It's great to see how influential it's been. Um, it's it's fantastic work. Um, I'm I'm mainly a student of the First World War, and I'm really conscious that uh, the First Citizen Army uh, was highly motivated, but felt that the contract they had with the state was was kind of betrayed and let down very much in the 20s and afterwards. How conscious were people in the Second War that they didn't want to um, repeat that and that the people had something at the end of the war that was um, that they could hang on to and understand that they actually fought for and there hadn't been that sense of betrayal? Yeah, I think it's there. I mean, you can fool me once, but you can't fool me twice, I think is, is a narrative that comes through. And I mean, the First World War is so central to the whole story for the Germans as well, right? I mean, there's going to be no stab in the back this time. Um, if you read, have, you read, have you read Nick Stargardt's book, The German War? How many people here have read it? I, if, apart from the three books, that, the books that we've written, right? Um, and, and, and it's the best book, I think, ever written on the Second World War. Read it. I mean, it's absolutely stunning. And he, he argues that you know, one of the really powerful dynamics in the Second World War is that father, you know, that generation say, I will not have my son go through it again. And so it becomes a generational conflict. My dad had to do it. I'm having to do it. We won't have to go through it again. And this is one of the reasons the Stargard says they fight to 1945, because they realize that this is Lord of the Rings, you know, end of the universe, kind of you know, multi, you know, intergenerational, multi-generational um, battle. I mean, I think the other thing I'd say about that memory is it's, a, it's, a, it's got a lot of power as a myth. If you want to look at where the really big change happens in terms of uh, the provision of social welfare in the UK, it's post-First World War. Right, it's not I mean, the, the the actual shift post Second World War is not as significant as what happens after the First World War. So, if you were looking at it in really big historical perspective, you might say, "Well, how much are they? How much are they betrayed? How much are they let down?" But I think the story is what really matters, and it's a story that's incredibly hard for uh, the British state to counter. Because who would you be looking... If you wanted to point to a success story for the 1930s, who's, who's tried to address the big problem of unemployment? Who's got all these people houses? Oh, it's Neville Chamberlain. Uh, after 1940, you can't say, look back to our proud record of Neville Chamberlain. Uh, you know, that's going to cause... It's a, you know, that, that story is done. Mm-hmm. And so you have to have a story of, I think, change and renewal. It's got to be something different. Right? And maybe that's, that's back to Jonathan's point about making the stories mesh. In, in America, um, before the Second World War, how much does the New Deal, um, in terms of practically men working on things like the CCC, um, and also in the relationship between the state and the citizen, how much does that have an impact on the, the citizen army and how Americans see the war? Yeah, the New Deal has a significant impact. I mean, you know, you mentioned uh, CCC. Half a million young men, primarily, worked on uh, CCC in the 1930s, explain some of them. What, explain what CCC uh, Civilian is. Conservation Corps, sorry. Uh, uh, Civilian Conservation Corps is created in 1933, um, you know, when Roosevelt takes office. Uh, the idea is that you're, you have a lot of unemployed young men, and you've got a, a possibly a very difficult situation that which they could become a crime problem or whatever else, um, and you've got to create jobs. So you would work in like forestry, park maintenance. You would live under some level of military-style discipline um, in a CCC camp. You would work five and a half, six days. You'd be paid pretty well, and you'd be working in healthy outdoor activity that would burn up a lot of that uh, energy that young men can bring to the table. So um, CCC is still in play by World War II, and so some of the, the, uh, the guys who had served in CCC uh, serve in the United States Armed Forces and, and draw on that, of course, and the CCC camps had been set up by Army officers. Uh, so that's a microcosm because the New Deal had created this kind of state intervention uh, that you see in American life in the 1930s that was kind of unprecedented for the most part, though the Hoover administration had tried certain you know, anti-depression um, you know, efforts like the Reconstruction Finance Corps, whatever. But um, it did create this kind of precedent that you would have a big government. 
and that it, you know now in time of war you could draw on that and the Roosevelt administration uses that kind of muscle memory to create all sorts of wartime agencies. So, but then the, the big political argument domestically in the US, besides like tax levels and all that, um, was whether to continue New Deal programs. So like for instance, CCC gets killed. Because uh, you know, when, when you've got 2% unemployment and all your young men in military service, like why do we need CCC anymore? Um, so you know, on the other hand, Tennessee Valley Authority, which was kind of similar in some respects, continues and it exists to this day. Um, but no, I, I would say to answer your question significantly. Yeah. Um, you talked about conscription and being conscripted into a fighting army and how you motivate people to do that. Not everyone's conscripted into the fighting army. I have visions of a documentary I saw as a kid of the chap with a cut glass accent who's a Bevan boy down the mines whose family expected him to be a lieutenant in a, a, a regiment somewhere. And I'm thinking, is for those people who are conscripted into non-fighting units, is there a sense of, thank God, uh, I'm, I'm not on the front line? Or is there sort of an almost reverse reaction of, I'm embarrassed, I don't want to be here, the, the, I, if I'm going to be conscripted, I want to do something that my society thinks is va valuable, which means fighting, it doesn't mean going down the mines or cooking uh, 50 miles behind the lines. <laughs> uh, I think it might be highly contextual. At a national level, there's a version of masculinity which is constructed in which combat service, and particularly volu voluntary aspects of combat service, are more highly prized and more highly valued, particularly by the opposite sex. Mm. So uh, being a fighter pilot, being a commando, being a paratrooper, mm. all of those sorts of things. Uh, on the other hand, if you read some of those mass observation overheard reports of what young men are saying to each other in pubs or in cafes or things like that, often they're having conversations about how can I get graded D so that I won't... Because the last... My dad was in the PBI last time round, and the, he's always told me the last thing to do is to be in the infantry this time round. So I think it might depend a lot on who you're with, right? which community you're in, and who you're talking to. And people... You know, you'll, you'll all know that in your own... I mean, it's, a, it's uh, not an equally gender-balanced uh, audience, is it? Uh, men and women move uh, capable of reconstructing their own identities multiple times on a daily basis, depending on the context that you're in. Right? So I think people... Nav the thing that's interesting to me is how skilled individuals are at navigating that, right? and the tactics that they'll develop to try and do it. There's a really good story in Penny Summerfield and Karina Peniston Bird's book about someone in the Home Guard who takes off his Home Guard uh, uh, badge when he's going out drinking because he doesn't... The, the Home Guard bit, if you're a young man, well, that means you're not actually seeing active service, right? So it's about trying to find a way to, to manage it. Yeah, so I think, I think it depends where and when. The army is very clever, isn't it? I mean, I think as an institution, it evolves remarkably over the course of the war, and it, it's aware of these things, and it changes. I mean, there were white feathers sent to Australians in the desert, um, even in 41, um, which is astonishing. Um, but you know, they improve the ba they improve uniforms and they make an effort. Yeah, it's a good question, hard to answer. I, I grew up amongst ex World War II infantrymen, and they were extremely tight, but it's, they wouldn't take crap from anyone. Now, how did how did the government and employers deal with these men when they come back? Because they they really wouldn't take any crap. And this was 30, 40 years later. Yeah, I mean, the exact same phenomenon in the, among American veterans, uh, and there's hundreds of thousands of them, and uh, there is major readjustment in terms of the economy and what kind of jobs are going to be available and whether veterans ought to have first, first go with them, and that's sort of the, 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 the thing in 1947, 48, that era. Um, I think there's a sense, too, that... Um, uh, these are guys who have earned the so-called American dream. Uh, you know, there's this economic explosion that eventually happens of suburbia and, and of modernization of the economy and all these kinds of things. Uh, and I think that um, there, there's an absolute sense that veterans should be a, a central part of that, combat veterans in particular. But they often weren't. Um, and they often weren't because of many issues that we generally summarize as PTSD or whatever that we tend to kind of overlook now. Uh, that the the uh, the World War II generation had had many of them had terrible terrible readjustment problems uh, when they came home, 
and that really never left them. Um, and so, you know, there were so many of them too. And, and uh, so, I, I think that uh, the, the mindset you've described is precisely the same uh, for what for many of the people I knew too, but also just having studied it. I mean, on a macro level, it's solvable uh, because you have a, a global economic boom post-war, and most of them will have jobs. And that's a big difference. To, you don't have the 1921-22 slump that leads to that story about betrayal after the First World War. And that was actually a big surprise to lots of people at the time. They'd expected there to be some kind of crash. So I think at a kind of really big level, the reason it's not a bigger political issue that you've got so many veterans is because they can be employed, because these uh, democratic states that we've been talking about are basically able to pay them off. Um, and there's also a, a relationship between, you know, in the UK and probably in the, throughout the Commonwealth between labour, organised labour and the state that's developed during the war that means that they keep being reasonably well rewarded post-war. Still, uh, that, that idea of the war as an education in awkwardness, I think, is really good. There's really interesting work. There's a guy called Rob Dale who works on Soviet veterans. You know, and again, that mixture of they've learned to, they've learned to hang together, they've got terrible problems, how are they going to be reintegrated causes a different set of problems for a totalitarian state and often leads to veterans being excluded again after the war because they can't be fitted in, right? because they might, they might tell a version of that totalitarian society which isn't acceptable. I like the intellectual insight that underpins the question, which is we're so used to talking about the Second World War as a, as a, as a, as a form for geopolitical change, but it changes almost everything, right? Whether it's from the environment to business practices to the relationship between men and women, it's such a dynamic moment of change. Um, I think there is an informal literature and an inform um, that suggests that individuals who had been trained to use their own initiative um, in the context of combat or whatever and end up coming into industry uh, and so you have a much more devolved kind of uh, industrial kind of process where rather than a heavy centralized process, business becomes much more devolved and, and reactive, therefore, and creative because it's not centralized because you have people who are used to taking responsibility. Uh, and so the British business changes in that way. I, I couldn't point you to a book, but kind of pick that up. Yeah. Can I ask a question? Are you all right with that? So much of what oh, you've been talking about, Jonathan, with what with what um, the the Duke setup is doing, is entangled with three years of setbacks, right? The British Army, you know, arguably and until Al Alamein, can't tie its own bootlaces. Really, it's up a, up against an opponent that's been thinking about war fighting for a long time, and it just can't get anything right. So, is this is this emphasis on the citizen because of that? Is that because of a lack of emphasis on the citizen? So the chicken and the egg. And also, John, the Americans don't have this uh, setback question. They, you know, Kasserine is, is seen as, oh no, you know, things have gone terribly wrong for the American army. And they actually, they, they immediately sort it out. They fix it. So they don't have to digest this um, setback, two years, three years of setbacks in the same way that the, the Duke forces do. So the, it's a two-part question, really. The, the, the chicken and the egg for, for Jonathan, and then for John, what on earth would the Americans have done if they'd had a, you know, their own Dunkirk in North Africa or something and realised they didn't know what they were doing and how to beat the Germans? I, I think the socio-political problem precedes the military crisis um, in the chicken and the egg dynamic. Uh, and I'm increasingly coming to that perspective as I read through the, the official histories for the German armed forces in the Second World War. Um, and I kind of, I'm, I'm waiting for this, you know, the fact that they're doctrinally pure, the fact that they've got all their training lined up. I want to see, you know, I want evidence of, you know, the fact that their technology is, that, they're a bloody mess, um, an absolute mess. And it's an, a miracle that I think we'll never really be able to fully explain that they pull off um, France in 1940. Um, and I think the ball bounces. You know, if you, I think even general generals say that if we ran this campaign 100 times, we'd only get it right once, and 99 times we'd lose. Um, if you look at, say, domestic, you know, there's, there's some issues on the domestic front for Germany in the early years of the war. So it's, I've gone, okay, I've gone, I've gone through um, the Ardennes with, on, a, on a battlefield study uh, following 1st Panzer Division, and every time it's a, a bunch of young fellas doing absolutely insane things, and a bunch of Belgians and French guys going, we're surrounded, we better, we better leg it. And, so, and even the Germans themselves now say that the doctrinal concept of you know, um, Blitzkrieg is a fiction, and they were following their nose. And so, so my sense is the Germans' morale, and you can look at sickness rates in the German army, they are 
ah, there's no sickness in the Battle of France. By the time you get to the crisis in Moscow, they're all, they're all going to the hospital. Um, so I think, I think morale is high in the German army in 1940. I don't think doctrine or training, if you read the official histories, is quite there. And I think that France and Britain and the Commonwealth kind of shatter. So I think the socio-political crisis precedes the military crisis. That's where I am, and I could explain it more. But I mean, yeah. I think the Americans kind of do have their crisis. It just doesn't last as long. Um, and it really where it plays out mostly is in the Pacific. Pearl Harbor is a massive debacle, of course, and then it's followed by other debacles. And in a way, the Americans have, um, you know, have a situation that doesn't turn out as well as Dunkirk. It makes Dunkirk look like a great moment, and that's the Philippines. Uh, the Philippines in 1941 and 42 is just a disaster on so many levels. Um, and, and I think one of the reasons why we tend to kind of, uh, you know, not, not that it doesn't stick with us much, it's the Filipinos who really pay most of the price for it. About 70 to 80% of that army was Filipino. It's, it's, it's unique in American history of a kind of colonial-style army, uh, but most guys don't get out, and they end up in, in terrible captivity. Uh, you know? And so the reaction is that we do see of the American government is we've got to buck up morale. We've got to do so. That's where the Doolittle Raid comes from, of course. Uh, and that's where, in my opinion, the whole MacArthur cult of personality kind of thing comes from. Of We have this great man who will save us. And if we just get him out to Australia, he will come back and redeem us. And, uh, but, so I, I personally, that is just the notional part of the, qu the question. If it had gone on longer, just knowing the American tendency... I think it would have descended into shocker, political bickering and partisanship. You know, uh, in other words, we've had this three years of debacle, and it's the Democrats' fault. It's the Republicans' fault. You know, it would have been. It probably would have been just vituperative, kind of self-flagellation of, you know, why is this happening? And it's probably the other side's fault, provided you don't have a German or Japanese invasion. Then everybody's going to be unified for that moment. The Americans do. Can I? And I know you want to disagree with me in five seconds. Um, but the Americans um, have this. The Americans grip it, right? They grip it, grip it. They do the biggest social science experiment in the history of the world. I think at that stage, they go in and they um, release questionnaires to divisions all across the. And actually, you can go read them right now if you go online to theamericansoldier.com. You can look at every bloody questionnaire that they asked the, during the war. And so they they went, okay, we've a problem with morale. Well, let's see what the guys want. And then we'll see if we can give them some of that. And then they might be willing to fight. And I, and I think you know, the Americans, they problem solve. They're incredible. And then they, and then they offer the American soldier um, the GI Bill. And eventually, you know, here's, here's the welfare state for, for veterans that we're not going to give to the rest of the, the citizens, but we'll give it to the, the veterans. And, therefore, and they give a massive amount of money at the end of the war. And it has a dramatic impact. Yeah. Uh, it, it affects the American uh, culture and economy so dramatically after World War II uh, because you could now get you know, farm loans, home loans, business loans, all these kinds of things, and of course, most famously, educational benefits. What's interesting about the Servicemen's Readjustment Act and GI Bill to me, as, a, as a, like an American military historian, is in, in different eras, the government is offering different valuable things in, in exchange for service. So if I fought in the Revolutionary War, they're gonna give me land. Uh, if I fought in the Civil War or the Spanish-American War, it's probably a pension, either for me or my widow. Uh, but after World War II now, it's educational benefits, and all of a sudden higher education just explodes. Or it's all these other sort of tangible kind of economic, uh, you know, bennies that I'm going to get, in addition to health care, which becomes increasingly important too, and especially as people live longer. So uh, all of that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, but well I'd put. say it's the, yeah, right. uh, <laughs> let's, look at the <laughs> let's look at the bedrock out of which that British set of solutions or British Commonwealth set of solutions comes and it comes out of a, a successful experiment with democracy from 1918 through to 1939 that actually there's room to have a big crisis and not to fall apart yeah. right okay you know you might have a disagreement about exactly whose fault it is but you don't have left and right at each other's throats uh, because they'd rather be fighting each other than fighting the Germans and that means that the settlement what you're going to offer domestically soldiers uh, in terms of, you know, the 42 beverage report and things like that. It's already, it's conceivable exactly what it looks like, you know. Well, and, and the Labour Party are taking the opportunity to act responsibly, aren't they? they, they because their reputation in the 30s is, has been in tatters, hasn't it? Because they, they haven't known which side to pick. The, you know, the national governments run them out of town politically and they haven't known which side to pick in the appeasement argument. And so Attlee grasps the opportunity to come into government, show that they can help people, show that they can be part of the national story, as it were, 
And so, but and the so, important one's Bevan, right? So Bevan, well, well, yeah, Bevan, yeah. Bevan knows 36. Uh, you know, you don't want to be, look at what's happened to German trade unionists. It's clear who the enemy is. The national government might be bad, but they're not Hitler. Yeah. Right? And therefore, he's willing to org- help organise, Bevan and Citrine are willing to help organise Labour behind the war effort in a way that you don't, you know, the fossil war splits Labour in a di- totally different way. Um, but again, we come back to that contrast between what is happening domestically in the UK and the British Empire, not least because of Churchill, you can't organise an imperial settlement that offers the same kind of thing, right? So you can't say Ind- India will definitely have independence post-war and it'll be the Indians who organise their own war effort. Mm. And that's not an unrealistic prospect if somebody else had been in control. That's a, di- that's a different panel. Yeah, that's, yeah we, haven't, <laughs> we haven't got... We don't have another hour. Um, <laughs> that's our, our time's up. Um, I think we've all found that absolutely fascinating. Incredible. Thank you, that was great. It was really interesting. <laughs> Gents, you're around all day, aren't you? So if people want to grab you and pick your brains, look at your spreadsheets. Um, uh, uh, Let's get them all. A massive thank you to Daniel Totman, Jonathan Fennell, John McManus for, for that incredible talk. Thank you. <laughs>